Chapter thirty eight of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Chapter thirty eight, part two. The following statement, taken from a report of the chief quartermaster with the army, will show what progress was made in supplying the army with clothing from the first of September to the date of crossing the Potomac on the thirty first of October and that a greater part of the clothing did not reach our depots until after the 14th of October. Statement of clothing and equipage received at the different depots of the Army of the Potomac from September 1st, 1862 to October 31st, 1863. Received at the depots from September 1st to October 6th. Drawers, 10,700. Forge caps, 4,000. Stockings, 6,200. Sack coats, 4,190. Cavalry jackets, 3,000. Canteens, 6,000. Flannel shirts, 6,200. Haversacks, 6,000. Trousers mounted, 4,200. Boots, 4,200. Shelter tents, 11,100. From October 6th to October 15th. Drawers, 17,000. Forge caps, 11,000. Stockings, 25,025. Cavalry jackets, 500. Canteens, 10,221. Flannel shirts, 18,325. Haversacks, 12,989. Trousers mounted, 1,000. Boots, 6,000. Shelter tents, 3,000. From October 15th to October 25th, drawers, 40,000. Forage caps, 19,500. Stockings, 65,200. Cavalry jackets, 1,250. Canteens, 9,000. Flannel shirts, 18,876. Haversacks, 5,000. Trousers mounted, 2,500. Boots, 3,600. Shelter tents, 9,000. From October 25th to October 31st, drawers, 30,000. Stockings, 30,000. Cavalry jackets, 1,500. Canteens, 3,008. Flannel shirts, 2,200. Haversacks, 9,900. Trousers mounted, 5,000. Boots, 20,040. Total, drawers, 97,700. Forage caps, 34,500. Stockings, 123,425. Sack coats, 4,190. Cavalry jackets, 6,250, canteens, 28,229, flannel shirts, 45,601, haversacks, 33,889, trousers mounted, 12,700, boots, 33,840, shelter tents, 23,100. Statement of clothing and equipage received continued. Received at the depots. From September 1st to October 6th, camp kettles, 799, mess pans, 2,030, overcoats, foot, 3,500, artillery jackets, 1,200, blankets, 20, overcoats mounted, 1,200, felt hats, 2,200, infantry coats, 2,000, trousers, foot, 2,000, booties, 2,000, from October 6th to October 15th, 
Camp Kettles, 1,302. Mess Pans, 2,100. Overcoats Foot, 12,000. Artillery Jackets, 500. Overcoats Mounted, 875. Felt Hats, 7,000. Infantry Coats, 12,060. Trousers Foot, 9,800. Booties, 7,000. Knit Shirts, 2,655. From October 15th to October 25th, Camp Kettles, 1,894. Mess Pans, 4,500. Overcoats Foot, 14,770. Artillery Jackets, 1,750. Blankets, 6,500. Overcoats Mounted, 3,500. Infantry Coats, 22,500. Trousers Foot, 39,620. Booties, 52,900. Knit Shirts, 2,424. From October 25th to October 31st. Artillery Jackets, 1,000. Blankets, 4,384. Overcoats mounted, 2,015. Infantry coats, 7,500. Trousers foot, 25,000. Knit shirts, 11,595. Total. Camp kettles, 3,995. Mess pans, 8,630. Overcoats foot, 30,270. Artillery jackets, 4,450. Blankets, 10,904. Overcoats mounted, 7,590. Felt hats, 9,200. Infantry coats, 44,060. Trousers foot, 76,120. Booties, 61,900. Knit shirts, 16,674. Colonel Ingalls, chief quartermaster, in his report upon this subject says, there was great delay in receiving our clothing. The orders were promptly given by me and approved by General Miggs, but the roads were slow to transport, particularly the Cumberland Valley Road. For instance, clothing ordered to Hagerstown on the 7th October for the Corps of Franklin, Porter, and Reynolds did not arrive there until about the 18th, and by that time, of course, there were increased wants and changes in position of troops. The clothing of Sumner arrived in great quantities near the last of October, almost too late for issue, as the army was crossing into Virginia. We finally left 50,000 suits at Harper's Ferry, partly on the cars just arrived, and partly in store. The causes of the reduction of our cavalry force have already been recited. The difficulty in getting new supplies from the usual sources led me to apply for and obtain authority for the cavalry and artillery officers to purchase their own horses. The followings are the telegrams and letters on this subject. To General Halleck, October 12th, it is absolutely necessary that some energetic means be taken to supply the cavalry of this army with remount horses. The present rate of supply is 1050 per week for the entire army here and in front of Washington. From this number, the artillery draw for their batteries. The General Halleck, October 14th. With my small cavalry force, it is impossible for me to watch the line of the Potomac properly, or even make the reconnaissances that are necessary for our movements. This makes it necessary for me to weaken my line very much by extending the infantry to guard the innumerable fords. This will continue until the river rises, and it will be next to impossible to prevent the rebel cavalry raids. My cavalry force, as I urged this morning, should be largely and immediately increased under any hypothesis, whether to guard the river or advance on the enemy or both. 
The following was received October 25th, 1862, from Washington, 4.50 p.m. To Major General McClellan, I have just received your dispatch about sore-tongued and fatigued horses. Will you pardon me for asking what the horses of your army have done since the Battle of Antietam that fatigues anything? A. Lincoln. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, October 25th, 6 p.m., 1862. His Excellency the President. In reply to your telegram of this date, I have the honor to state that from the time this army left Washington on the 7th of September, my cavalry has been constantly employed in making reconnaissances, scouting, and picketing. Since the Battle of Antietam, six regiments have made one trip of 200 miles, marching 55 miles in one day while endeavoring to reach Stuart's cavalry. General Pleasanton, in his official report, states that he, with the remainder of our available cavalry while on Stuart's track, marched 78 miles in 24 hours. Besides these two remarkable expeditions, our cavalry has been engaged in picketing and scouting 150 miles of riverfront ever since the Battle of Antietam, and has made repeated reconnaissances since that time, engaging the enemy on every occasion. Indeed, it has performed harder service since the battle than before. I beg you will also consider that this same cavalry was brought from the peninsula, where it encountered most laborious service, and was at the commencement of this campaign in low condition, and from that time to the present it has had no time to recruit. If any instance can be found where overworked cavalry has performed more labor than mine since the Battle of Antietam, I am not conscious of it. George B. McClellan, Major General. The following was received October 24th from Cherry Run, 12 noon. To Colonel A.V. Colburn, I have great difficulty in obtaining spies and guides without payment. Would it not be well to have sent to my acting division quartermaster, First Lieutenant John S. Schultz, $500 for that purpose? Colonel Williams reports, 11 a.m. today, I have in camp 267 horses belonging to officers and men. Of these, 128 are positively and absolutely unable to leave the camp from the following causes, viz. sore tongue, grease and consequent lameness, and sore backs. For example, the 5th U.S. Cavalry has now in camp 70 horses. Of these, 53 are worthless from the above causes. Out of 139 horses, the remainder, I do not believe, 50 can trot 8 miles. The other portion of my command, now absent on picket duty, has horses which are about in the same condition as no selection unless absolutely necessary has been made. The number of soreback horses exceedingly small. The diseases are principally grease, sore tongue. The horses which are still sound are absolutely broken down from fatigue and want of flesh. I will also remark that the men of my command are much in want of clothing. Colonel Williams the cavalry should therefore be changed, I think, and their number increased to 1,000 with one battery of horse artillery. I would respectfully desire to have Colonel Williams in command. John Newton, Brigadier General Commanding. Colonel Colburn, Telegraph from Washington, October 25th. To General McClellan, I went this morning to see General Halleck and spoke to him about the bridges, etc., and also about rebuilding the road to Winchester and prolonging it to Strasburg also about the forces to be left at Harper's Ferry, and what was to be done in the Shenandoah provided the enemy fell back. The only answer I could get was that they had nothing to do with the present campaign, and that you ought to be able to decide in the premises. There was no use of trying to explain matters to him, because he would not listen to anything. 
When I spoke to him about the cavalry horses, he said that that was the quartermaster's business, and he had nothing to do with it. I will try again, but think it no use. The following is an extract from the official report of Colonel Ingalls. Immediately after the Battle of Antietam, efforts were made to supply deficiencies in clothing and horses. Large requisitions were prepared and sent in. The artillery and cavalry required large numbers to cover losses sustained in battle, on the march, and by diseases. Both of these arms were deficient when they left Washington. A most violent and destructive disease made its appearance at this time, which put nearly 4,000 animals out of service. Horses reported perfectly well one day would be dead lame the next and it was difficult to foresee where it would end or what number would cover the loss. They were attacked in the hoof and tongue. No one seemed able to account for the appearance of this disease. Animals kept at rest would recover in time, but could not be worked. I made application to send west and purchase horses at once, but it was refused, on the ground that the outstanding contracts provided for enough, but they were not delivered sufficiently fast, nor in sufficient numbers until late in October and early in November. I was authorized to buy 2,500 late in October, but the delivery was not completed until in November, after we had reached Warrington. In a letter from General Miggs, written on the 14th of October and addressed to the General-in-Chief, it is stated, There have been issued, therefore, to the Army of the Potomac, since the battles in front of Washington, three place losses, 9,254 horses. What number of horses were sent to General Pope before his return to Washington, I have no means of determining. But the following statement, made upon my order by the chief quartermaster with the army, and who had means for gaining accurate information, forces upon my mind the conclusion that the quartermaster general was in error. Headquarters Army of the Potomac, Chief Quartermaster's Office, October 31, 1862. Horses purchased September 6, 1862 by Colonel Ingalls, Chief Quartermaster, and issued to the forces under the immediate command of Major General George B. McClellan, 1,200. Issued and turned over to the above force by Captain J.J. J. Dana, Assistant Quartermaster in Washington, 2,261. Issued to forces at and near Washington, which have since joined the command, 352. Total, purchased by Colonel Ingalls, and issued and turned over by Captain Dana to the forces in this immediate command, 3,813. Issued by Captain J.J. J. Dana, Assistant Quartermaster, to the forces in the vicinity of Washington, 3,363. Grand total, purchased by Colonel R. Ingalls, Chief Quartermaster, and issued and turned over by Captain J.J. J. Dana, Assistant Quartermaster, to the entire Army of the Potomac and the forces around Washington, 7,176. About 3,000 horses have been turned over to the Quartermaster's Department by officers as unfit for service. Nearly 1,500 should now be turned over also, being worn out and diseased. Respectfully submitted, Fred Myers, Lieutenant Colonel and Quartermaster. This official statement, made up from the reports of the Quartermasters who received and distributed the horses, exhibits the true state of the case, and gives the total number of horses received by the Army of the Potomac and the troops around Washington, during a period of eight weeks, as 7,176, or 2,078 less than the number stated by the Quartermaster General. Supposing that 1,500 were issued to the Army under General Pope previous to its return to Washington, as General Miggs states, there would still remain 578 horses which he does not account for. 
The letter of the General-in-Chief to the Secretary of War on the 28th of October, and the letter of General Miggs to the General-in-Chief on the 14th of October, convey the impression that, upon my repeated applications for cavalry and artillery horses for the Army of the Potomac, I had received a much greater number than was really the case. It will be seen from Colonel Meyer's report that of all the horses alluded to by General Miggs, only 3,813 came to the army with which I was ordered to follow and attack the enemy. Of course, the remainder did not in the slightest degree contribute to the efficiency of the cavalry or artillery of the army with which I was to cross the river. Neither did they in the least facilitate any preparations for carrying out the order to advance upon the enemy as the general-in-chief's letter might seem to imply. During the same period that we were receiving the horses alluded to, about 3,000 of our old stock were turned into the quartermaster's department, and 1,500 more reported as in such condition that they ought to be turned in as unfit for service, thus leaving the active army some 700 short of the number required to make good existing deficiencies. To say nothing of providing remounts for men whose horses had died or been killed during the campaign and those previously dismounted. Notwithstanding all the efforts made to obtain a remount, there were, after deducting the force engaged in picketing the river, but about a thousand serviceable cavalry horses on the 21st day of October. In a letter dated October 14, 1862, the General-in-Chief says, It is also reported to me that the number of animals with your army in the field is about 31,000. It is believed that your present proportion of cavalry and of animals is much larger than that of any other of our armies. What number of animals our other armies had, I am not prepared to say, but military men in European armies have been of the opinion that an army to be efficient, while carrying on active operations in the field, should have a cavalry force equal in numbers to from one-sixth to one-fourth of the infantry force. My cavalry did not amount to one-twentieth part of the army, and hence the necessity of giving every one of my cavalry soldiers a serviceable horse. Cavalry may be said to constitute the antennae of an army. It scouts all the roads in front, on the flanks, and in the rear of the advancing columns, and constantly feels the enemy. The amount of labor falling on this arm during the Maryland campaign was excessive. To persons not familiar with the movements of troops, and the amount of transportation required for a large army marching away from water or railroad communications, the number of animals mentioned by the General-in-Chief may have appeared unnecessarily large but to a military man who takes the trouble to enter into an accurate and detailed computation of the number of pounds of subsistence and forage required for such an army as that of the Potomac, it will be seen that the 31,000 animals were considerably less than what was absolutely necessary to an advance. As we were required to move through a country which could not be depended upon for any of our supplies, it became necessary to transport everything in wagons and to be prepared for all emergencies. I did not consider it safe to leave the river without subsistence and forage for ten days. The official returns of that date show the aggregate strength of the army for duty to have been about 110,000 men of all arms. This did not include teamsters, citizen employees, officers, servants, etc., amounting to some 12,000, which gave a total of 122,000 men. The subsistence alone of this army for ten days required for its transportation 1,830 wagons at 2,000 pounds to the wagon, and 10,980 animals. Our cavalry horses at that time amounted to 5,046, and our artillery horses to 6,836.
to transport full forage for these 22,862 animals for 10 days required 17,832 additional animals, and this forage would only supply the entire number, 40,694, of animals, with a small fraction over half allowance for the time specified. It will be observed that this estimate does not embrace the animals necessary to transport quartermaster supplies, baggage, camp equipment, ambulances, reserve ammunition, forage for officers' horses, etc., which would greatly augment the necessary transportation. It may very truly be said that we did make the march with the means at our disposal, but it will be remembered that we met with no serious opposition from the enemy, neither did we encounter delays from any other cause. The roads were in excellent condition, and the troops marched with the most commendable order and celerity. If we had met with a determined resistance from the enemy, and our progress had been very much retarded thereby, we would have consumed our supplies before they could have been renewed. A proper estimate of my responsibilities as the commander of that army did not justify me in basing my preparations for the expedition upon the supposition that I was to have an uninterrupted march. On the contrary, it was my duty to be prepared for all emergencies, and not the least important of my responsibilities was the duty of making ample provision for supplying my men and animals with rations and forage. Knowing the solicitude of the President for an early movement, and sharing with him fully his anxiety for prompt action, on the 21st of October I telegraphed to the General-in-Chief as follows. October 21st. Since the receipt of the President's order to move on the enemy, I have been making every exertion to get this army supplied with clothing absolutely necessary for marching. This, I am happy to say, is now nearly accomplished. I have also during the same time repeatedly urged upon you the importance of supplying cavalry and artillery horses to replace those broken down by hard service, and steps have been taken to ensure a prompt delivery. Our cavalry, even when well supplied with horses, is much inferior in number to that of the enemy, but inefficiency has proved itself superior. So forcibly has this been impressed upon our old regiments by repeated successes, that the men are fully persuaded that they are equal to twice their number of rebel cavalry. Exclusive of the cavalry force now engaged in picketing the river, I have not at present over about 1,000 horses for service. Officers have been sent in various directions to purchase horses, and I expect them soon. Without more cavalry horses, our communications, from the moment we march, would be at the mercy of the large cavalry force of the enemy, and it would not be possible for us to cover our flanks properly, or to obtain the necessary information of the position and movements of the enemy in such a way as to ensure success. My experience has shown the necessity of a large and efficient cavalry force. Under the foregoing circumstances, I beg leave to ask whether the President desires me to march on the enemy at once, or to wait the reception of the new horses, every possible step having been taken to ensure their prompt arrival. On the same day, General Halleck replied as follows. October 21st. Your telegram of 12 noon has been submitted to the President. He directs me to say that he has no change to make in his order of the 6th instant. If you have not been and are not now in condition to obey it, you will be able to show such want of ability. The President does not expect impossibilities, but he is very anxious that all this good weather should not be wasted in inactivity. Telegraph when you will move and on what lines you propose to march. From the tenor of this dispatch, I conceived that it was left 
for my judgment to decide whether or not it was possible to move with safety to the army at that time. And this responsibility I exercised with the more confidence in view of the strong assurances of his trust in me, as commander of that army, with which the President had seen fit to honor me during his last visit. The cavalry requirements, without which an advance would have been in the highest degree injudicious and unsafe, were still wanting. The country before us was an enemy's country, where the inhabitants furnished to the enemy every possible assistance, providing food for men and forage for animals, giving all information concerning our movements, and rendering every aid in their power to the enemy's cause. It was manifest that we should find it, as we subsequently did, a hostile district, where we could derive no aid from the inhabitants that would justify dispensing with the active cooperation of an efficient cavalry force. Accordingly, I fixed upon the 1st of November as the earliest date at which the forward movement could well be commenced. The General-in-Chief, in a letter to the Secretary of War on the 28th of October, says, In my opinion, there has been no such want of supplies in the Army under General McClellan as to prevent his compliance with the orders to advance against the enemy. Notwithstanding this opinion expressed by such high authority, I am compelled to say again that the delay in the reception of necessary supplies up to that date had left the army in a condition totally unfit to advance against the enemy, that an advance under the existing circumstances would, in my judgment, have been attended with the highest degree of peril, with great suffering and sickness among the men, and with imminent danger of being cut off from our supplies by the superior cavalry force of the enemy, and with no reasonable prospect of gaining any advantage over him. I dismiss this subject with the remark that I have found it impossible to resist the force of my own convictions that the commander of an army who, from the time of its organization, has for eighteen months been in constant communication with its officers and men, the greater part of the time engaged in active service in the field, and who has exercised this command in many battles, must certainly be considered competent to determine whether his army is in proper condition to advance on the enemy or not and he must necessarily possess greater facilities for forming a correct judgment in regard to the wants of his men and the condition of his supplies than the general-in-chief in his office at Washington City. The movement from Washington into Maryland, which culminated in the battles of South Mountain and Antietam, was not a part of an offensive campaign with the object of the invasion of the enemy's territory and an attack upon its capital, but was defensive in its purposes, although offensive in its character and would be technically called a defensive-offensive campaign. It was undertaken at a time when our army had experienced severe defeats, and its object was to preserve the national capital and Baltimore, to protect Pennsylvania from invasion, and to drive the enemy out of Maryland. These purposes were fully and finally accomplished by the Battle of Antietam, which brought the Army of the Potomac into what might be termed an accidental position on the Upper Potomac. Having gained the immediate object of the campaign, the first thing to be done was to ensure Maryland from a return of the enemy, the second to prepare our own army, exhausted by a series of severe battles, destitute to a great extent of supplies, and very deficient in artillery and cavalry horses, for a definite offensive movement, and to determine upon the line of operations for a further advance. At the time of the Battle of Antietam, the Potomac was very low and presented a comparatively weak line of defense unless watched by large masses of troops. The reoccupation of Harper's Ferry and the disposition of troops above that point 
rendered the line of the Potomac secure against everything except cavalry raids. No time was lost in placing the army in proper condition for an advance, and the circumstances which caused the delay after the Battle of Antietam have been fully enumerated. I never regarded Harper's Ferry or its vicinity as a proper base of operations for a movement upon Richmond. I still considered the line of the peninsula as the true approach, but for obvious reasons did not make any proposal to return to it. On the 6th of October, as stated above, I was ordered by the President, through his General-in-Chief, to cross the Potomac and give battle to the enemy or drive him south. Two lines were presented for my choice. First, up the valley of the Shenandoah, in which case I was to have 12,000 to 15,000 additional troops. Second, to cross between the enemy and Washington, that is, east of the Blue Ridge, in which event I was to be reinforced with 30,000 men. At first I determined to adopt the line of the Shenandoah, for these reasons. The Harper's Ferry and Winchester Railroad, and the various turnpikes converging upon Winchester, afforded superior facilities for supplies. Our cavalry being weak, this line of communication could be more easily protected. There was no advantage in interposing at that time the Blue Ridge and the Shenandoah between the enemy and myself. At the period in question, the Potomac was still very low, and I apprehended that if I crossed the river below Harper's Ferry, the enemy would promptly check the movement by recrossing into Maryland, at the same time covering his rear by occupying in strong force the passes leading through the Blue Ridge from the southeast into the Shenandoah Valley. I anticipated, as the result of the first course, that Lee would fight me near Winchester, if he could do so under favorable circumstances, or else that he would abandon the lower Shenandoah and leave the Army of the Potomac free to act upon some other line of operations. If he abandoned the Shenandoah, he would naturally fall back upon his railway communications. I have since been confirmed in the belief that if I had crossed the Potomac below Harper's Ferry in the early part of October, General Lee would have recrossed into Maryland. As above explained, the army was not in condition to move until late in October, and in the meantime circumstances had changed. The period had arrived when a sudden and great rise of the Potomac might be looked for at any moment. The season of bad roads and difficult movements was approaching, which would naturally deter the enemy from exposing himself very far from his base, and his movements all appeared to indicate a falling back from the river towards his supplies. Under these circumstances, I felt at liberty to disregard the possibility of the enemy's recrossing the Potomac, and determined to select the line east of the Blue Ridge, feeling convinced that it would secure me the largest accession of force and the most cordial support of the President, whose views from the beginning were in favor of that line. The subject of the defense of the line of the Upper Potomac after the advance of the main army had long occupied my attention. I desired to place Harper's Ferry and its dependencies in a strong state of defense, and frequently addressed the General-in-Chief upon the subject of the erection of field works and permanent bridges there, asking for the funds necessary to accomplish the purpose. Although I did my best to explain, as clearly as I was able, that I did not wish to erect permanent works of masonry, and that neither the works nor the permanent bridges had any reference to the advance of the army, but solely to the permanent occupation of Harper's Ferry, I could never make the General-in-Chief understand my wishes, but was refused the funds necessary to erect the field works, on the ground that there was no appropriation for the erection of permanent fortifications, and was not allowed to build the permanent bridge, on the ground that the main army could not be delayed in its movements until its completion. 
Of course, I never thought of delaying the advance of the army for that purpose, and so stated repeatedly. End of chapter 38